Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Sat on a tree Down a down Hey down a down They were as black As they might be With a down One of them Said to his mate Where shall we Our breakfast take With a down Dairy 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 Down down Hello and welcome to Three Ravens Haunting Season, a month-long celebration of ooks, spooks, the season of the witch, and all things chilling and weird. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller, and English romanticism obsessive, and I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, Eleanor Conlon. Hello, and we should start this episode by saying a hearty welcome to all of our new supporters on Patreon, who, as it's haunting season, should probably have a distinct Halloween-style greeting. Oh, definitely. Anyway, welcome to the Raven's Nest, to Katie, Brighton Community Workshop Project, Holly, Michael, Sam and Drew. All hail Katie, Dark Lord of Patreon. All hail Brighton Community Workshop Project, Dark Lord of Patreon. All hail Holly, Dark Lord of Patreon. All hail Michael, Dark Dark Lord of Patreon. All hail Sam, Dark Lord of Patreon. All hail Drew, Dark Lord of Patreon. Now, if you would like to support the Three Ravens podcast, then do consider signing up to our Patreon, where you'll get rafts of exclusive content, including all of our episodes early and ad-free, our stories as text versions, our monthly newsletter filled with folk customs for the month, as well as exclusive magic spells, tarot spreads, and other witchy goodnesses, as well as monthly exclusive episodes 
episodes like this month's Rye Ghost Tour, episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, and more for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast. Please also send us photos of your carved pumpkins for this year. Yes. Email them through to Three Ravens Podcast at gmail.com and we'll share them on our social media channels or you can tag us if you'd rather on yep. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Then at the end of the month, we'll pick our favourite three and send the winners a limited edition Three Ravens Haunting Season mug. Now, new Haunting Season merch may not quite be on the shop by the time this episode goes out, but keep an eye on our social media channels and we'll let you know when there's new stuff there that you can buy. So these Haunting Season episodes are going to be a bit different to our usual episode format yeah. in that they're going to be made up of two stories each, mm. one from me and one from Martin, with order determined by a coin toss. As such, Eleanor, what are you going to call Heads or tails? Uh, I'm going to go for tails. Okay, and just to let everyone know, I've picked a random coin from my collection of coinage. And today we have a Republic of Kenya one shilling coin from 1980. All right. And tails it is. Looks like I'm going first. Yeah, it is. So I'm going to go second this week with my story, Tomfoolery, which uh, is going to follow Eleanor's most excellent story, the Rosemary Branch. We'll be back at the end to have a chat about the stories, so stick around. Yes, yes. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. <laughs> Elsie said goodbye to Robert before the train pulled into the platform. There's no sense in you getting cold too, she said. She kissed him on the cheek, quite close to his mouth. If you start now, you'll be back before dark. If you're sure you'll be all right, Robert said. His breath puffed in the cold air. They were standing close enough together that Elsie could see two small red pimples under the black hairs of his thin moustache. In the light of the gas lamps at Hatcheston Halt, he looked handsome. Really, she said. Go back to them. I'll write in the morning, he said. A second kiss found its mark more successfully than the first, and soon Robert was a dark shape striding away in the fading light. Elsie sat on a bench on the platform and thought about Robert. She hadn't wanted him to stay. The walk to the station in the chilly twilight had been too perfect a slice of time. Such glimmers of happiness ought to be preserved in isolation. Seeking to prolong them only ruined them. Sorry there's no fire in the waiting room, miss, said the station master. He was the sole sign of life. It would be the last train of the day along this line, and Elsie was the only person waiting for it. She told him that it didn't matter, that she preferred the fresh air. That was true. She welcomed the quiet of the midwinter evening, the crisp air scented with wood smoke and wet leaves. When the station master went back into the ticket office... The only sound was the piercingly sweet song of a solitary robin, perched in black, leafless branches like a jaunty little hat in a tangle of uncombed hair. There was a divine smell which came to Elsie gradually, as sleep sometimes creeps on in an overheated parlour. It's the Framlingham branch line, really, she remembered Robert saying. But everyone calls it the Rosemary Branch, after the great quantity of it growing along the banks. On the steep lane down to his family home, he'd picked her a sprig of the wild rosemary. 
she still had it tucked into her hat band. It was far nicer and more strongly scented than the rose water Elsie dotted on her handkerchief. She took off her gloves and felt the fresh air on her hot hands. Robert's parents' house was far too warm. But they'd been kind and hidden any doubts they might have had about Elsie's suitability for their son. Elsie and Robert had met in London some months before at a summer party hosted by Robert's office. Elsie had arrived with somebody else, one of Robert's fellow clerks, but it had been Robert who had walked her home. Robert continued to walk Elsie home from cafes, dance halls and the occasional picture house until December, when he'd walked her to his own lodgings instead, poured her a glass of sherry and asked her to marry him. Things were now following the usual course. Elsie gave notice to her landlady, Robert made inquiries about suburban properties from which he might easily travel to the office, and Robert's parents invited Elsie for lunch so they could meet her. In due course, Elsie would buy a new hat and try to come up with a few friends and relations so her side of the ceremony wouldn't look entirely bare. A sudden ringing startled her. It was the bell announcing that the train had reached the preceding stop on the line only six minutes away from Hatcheston Halt. There was still nobody else waiting. Elsie was quite surprised that they bothered to run the trains at all this late on a winter afternoon. But perhaps it would be full when it drew in and she would have to squeeze and jostle for a seat. Six minutes passed in uneventful contemplation of the scuff on the side of her left shoe and the run in the heel of her right stocking. Then Elsie saw the lower quadrant of the signals move jerkily upwards like a scarecrow raising its arm and greeting to the crows and a plume of steam in the rapidly darkening skies. The engine was a huge black locomotive, the brass of its fittings dulled to a sooty glint. Elsie gazed down at its vast wheels as it rolled almost lazily into the platform. Only a few of the lamps in the carriages were lit. It's a quiet service, the station master said behind Elsie. You won't be disturbed, miss. She noticed that he'd extinguished all but one of the lamps and guessed that this was the end of his day. Elsie thanked him as he opened the third-class carriage door for her and helped her into the train. If he noticed that she had removed her gloves, he said nothing about it. By the time she'd settled into a seat, he'd already gone into the station house and locked the platform door. Elsie put her gloves and handbag on the empty seat next to her and felt the tremble and shudder as the train moved gently away from the platform leaving Hatcheston Holt and the village and Robert and Robert's mother and father in another life. There was nobody in the compartment but Elsie. She felt cheered that her thoughts would be uninterrupted until the porter came round to check her ticket. That was far too much to hope for from the London train. She stood and opened the window, letting the cool rush of air relieve her warm face. The swaying motion of the train was pleasant, reminding Elsie of being in Robert's arms at a dance hall in a crush of people. Her eyes drifted closed, lost in the imaginary dance. The impression was vivid enough that Elsie half expected the band leader to call out the next dance, but it was the train's loud whistle which crowed out over the flat, deserted countryside. The darkness had dashed down, and Elsie could see very little of the banks either side of the tracks, but she could smell the wild rosemary bushes, mixed with the burnt cinder scent of the engine coal. 
Rosemary for remembrance, she thought. What was that? Something from school? Shakespeare, probably, or the Bible. The two had been more or less interchangeable. Neither had any place in her life, either as an agency typist or Robert's fiancée. Against her dark hat and coat, the reflection of her face in the carriage window floated white and lonely. Something about the way the lamplight caught in the glass made it seem as though there was another face next to hers every so often, when the train bumped and swerved round the bends with its brakes screaming. Elsie's eyes looked completely dark in the window, like damp holes worn in a paper bag. Without colour, she had an eerie aspect, almost blank. I wonder what Robert sees in me, she thought. If this is me, there isn't much to see. It occurred to her that it was rather horrible to consider herself in this way, an empty sort of person riding about on an empty train, If she was simply to vanish, what difference would it really make to anybody? The gap in the world created by her absence would, she felt, close seamlessly. Perhaps just the sprig of rosemary from her hat would remain. Rosemary for remembrance. The train's whistle blew a hollow shriek and the lamps flickered. Elsie's eyes must have been tricked by the rushing darkness outside, but it seemed to her as though the double reflections she saw in the window were not both her own face, but that somebody was standing next to her. It took a little longer for the shock to catch up with her, but when it did, she jerked violently back from the window. She almost trod on the ticket collector. "'Didn't disturb you there, did I, miss?' he said. He was quite young and spoke cheerily enough, but he looked tired. "'Not at all,' she said. I just wanted some air. He clipped her ticket. Nearly at Parham, miss, he said. Back to Framlingham, is it? London, Elsie said. There was a service into Liverpool Street from Framlingham. London, is it? The ticket collector said. I went there once. When he left Elsie to move through the train, she saw that he had very bright carroty hair under his peaked cap. She sat back down. It was only a few more minutes until the train called at Parham, a pleasant, well-lit little station. She heard the slam of doors and could see people disembarking, so there'd clearly been a few on her train after all. She saw the carrot-haired porter on the platform, helping an old man with his case. She was conscious of wanting to be back with the familiar now. Even though her little room with its chipped wash jug was far from luxurious, she knew it. Its smells, its proximity to the countless other people living like Elsie in similar little rooms with similar chipped wash jugs. Luckily, the rosemary branch was short. It was only another six minutes to Framlingham, and from then to London, and a sense of reality, however small. There was a place for Elsie in London, more tangible than out here in the flats of Suffolk. The train made the soft whistle of a kettle beginning to sing and moved on. The scent of rosemary really was overpowering. It climbed through the window and sat in the carriage as Elsie's fellow passenger. It was stronger even than the greasy perfume of the potted meat sandwiches the man opposite her on the journey up had eaten with dogged determination for the entire trip. There must be masses of it, Elsie thought, to smell so strong. She wished she could see it, but it really was too dark. 
It was in her nostrils and eyes, almost too forceful, acrid and stinging rather than fresh and sweet. The quality of the train's chugging sound changed and slowed. They'd entered a tunnel. The train slowed to a crawl, then a creep, and then it stopped completely. Stopping in a tunnel? How odd, Elsie thought. She reminded herself that the line was very short. The signals probably had to be placed at a particular distance for safety. There was nothing to see except her own pale face in the window, which she avoided. The train sat for a long while. Elsie looked at her watch. It was already twenty past four, the time the train should have been at Framlingham. They'd been sitting in the tunnel for longer than it ought to have taken between stations. With something like a muffled cry, all the lamps in Elsie's third-class carriage went out at once. Elsie was not a nervous person. It had never occurred to her to be. But she was practical and didn't think that sitting in the dark on an apparently deceased train in the middle of nowhere was a sensible way to spend her time. She had a cigarette case and matches with her, so she struck one and used the light to find her way to the compartment door. It was her intention to make the way through the train towards the front, in the direction the ticket collector had gone, and to find him or another person who might be able to explain what was happening. When she got to the corridor, she was able to grope her way along quite successfully without the need for more matches. She lit one again when she reached the door adjoining it to the next carriage to see what she was doing. There was nobody at all in the first three carriages Elsie passed through though she called out loudly upon entering each one. The ticket collector was nowhere in sight, and nor was anybody else. Perhaps I'd better get out and try to walk along the line side, Elsie thought. I may be able to see by the light at the end of the tunnel and get to the engine driver if nothing else. But the idea of getting out just as the train started up again and being abandoned in the tunnel or worse injured was horrible to Elsie, so she persisted with her clumsy progress through the train. At last, when she wrenched the door to the fifth carriage open, she was greeted by the welcome sight of light. Elsie's breath came out in a sudden gasp. She hadn't realised she'd been holding it. It was light, if not life, at least. Elsie stumbled, almost running to the first-class compartment at the end of the corridor where the light came from. The blinds of the compartment were nearly entirely drawn, and the light came from a stair-rod-thin sliver cast onto the corridor floor. Without knocking, Elsie opened the door directly. "'Excuse me,' she said, without pausing to see if anybody was inside. "'Do you know what is happening?' The first-class compartment had a single occupant. It was a young woman of about Elsie's age and stature, looking out of the carriage window at the black tunnel beyond. Afterwards, Elsie could not recall the details of her hat and coat, her shoes or the colour of her hair, but only had a general impression that they were faded and nondescript, much like her own. The woman's face, reflected in the window as Elsie's had been earlier, looked as hers had done, curiously blank. "'Excuse me,' Elsie said again. "'The lights have all gone out and the train stopped and I can't find anyone.' Might I sit here with you until somebody comes? Very slowly, the young woman turned around to look at Elsie. 
The impression of blankness did not just belong to her reflection. There were no eyes in her face at all, and no lips, just a dark smear where a mouth ought to have been. She held a bunch of rosemary in her lap. Must be a trick of the light, Elsie thought. Some horrible illness, a condition. She tried to explain it to herself, even as her feet moved involuntarily back to the sliding door. The young woman was standing up. She moved jerkily, as though she hadn't stood for a long while, and she moved towards Elsie. The closer she came, the more Elsie became certain that it wasn't a trick of the light. The young woman's eyes were deep black voids, and her mouth a yawning chasm. Her skin was waxy and uneven in texture, clotted with a white, fleshy material which gave the appearance of disintegrating soap. A hideous stench came from the gaping mouth, not quite overpowered by the rosemary bouquet which she held out to Elsie, almost like an offering. Elsie blundered back into the corridor to get away, get anywhere from that awful face and smell. The lights in the first-class compartment all plunged out. Elsie did scream then, breathlessly, hopelessly, knowing nobody would hear, but that she was trapped in the dark with that blank-eyed thing. She woke at Framlingham Station in the ladies' waiting room, with the station master and another woman leaning over her. When Elsie saw the woman's mushroom-coloured hat, she almost screamed again, but this woman had bright brown eyes, creased in a lacy web of wrinkles. There now, miss, it's all right, said the station master. You fainted, that's all. Lucky I always walk down the trains looking for sleepers, or you might have stayed there all night. Elsie shuddered at the thought of being on that fearful train all night. The train stopped for such a long time, she said. What on earth happened? In the tunnel, there was nobody there. The porter... The station master stared at her. What do you mean, miss? The train didn't stop. Some time. Early even, look. He pointed to the waiting room clock. It was twenty-two minutes past four. But it stopped, and I couldn't find anybody, and all the lights went out. Oh, they do flicker sometimes in the tunnels the station master said, and the ticket collector on that service sometimes gets off at Parham, it's where he lives. I expect he thought he'd be all right to do it, as you were the only one on the train. Nice novelty, that, if you hadn't had a queer turn. An undisturbed journey. That was the last thing Elsie would have called it. She knew it was no use to mention the time in the tunnel again, or the apparition in the first-class compartment. After a cup of two-sweet tea, she caught the last service from Framlingham to Liverpool Street. She seated herself between a fat man in a damp, waxed overcoat and a woman with a small child on her lap. She shifted in her seat more than she might usually, feeling her elbows and shoulders touch her travelling companion's present, living bodies. She faced resolutely away from the window and did not object when somebody suggested pulling the curtains against the dark night. When she returned to her lodgings and took her hat off, she discovered the sprig of rosemary still tucked in its band. With revulsion, she flung it into the gas fire and watched until every last dark green spike had smoked to nothing. 
She held her hand over her nose and mouth, trying to forget the horrible stench of the blank-faced young woman that her rosemary bouquet had not managed to mask. The next morning, Elsie went to the Morris garage on the Whitechapel Road to make inquiries about putting payments down for a motor car, with the firm conviction that she would never ride on a train again. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, Ackley, I-, I do think you'd best just let me be. Not a chance of it. Ackley replied, filling Jenkins' snifter almost to the rim. Terribly kind of you, old fellow, only don't you have a family to get back to? Ackley placed the brandy bottle on a side table and eased himself back in his seat. The pair had finished work late, dined at Benneke's, and now reclined in high-backed leather armchairs, bathed in the amber half-light of the parlour room at the Somerset Club, a favourite haunt of Ackley's, and one of many such gentlemanly bolt holes frequented by the young Proctor at such times when the last thing he wanted to do was go home. A handsome and somewhat dandyish fellow, Ackley removed his fob from his waistcoat, clicked it open, and, after taking only the briefest note of the time, swiftly snapped the timepiece closed, placing it snugly in his pocket. It's of little consequence now, he replied, his face downcast. The children will be abed, and Tabitha no doubt ready to turn in herself. The young lawyer rubbed his moustache with his forefinger, his face in shadow then, and shot through with an indeterminable brand of anguish. He then turned his attention on Jenkins, full beam, smiling in a manner that saw his large white teeth glint in the firelight and his dark eyes sparkle with a boyish sort of mischief. Besides... He continued, I overheard muttering from fellows at the firm. Word is that you're to spend Christmas alone. Jenkins looked away from Ackley then, staring into the fire. Come now, chuckled Ackley, leaning forward and reaching out towards Jenkins, touching him gingerly on the knee. No need to be maudlin. It's Christmas Eve and here we are, two friends together. 
Ackley smiled again, baring those broad white teeth, and Jenkins shot him a look. Not a look of reproach per se, but a dark, blank sort of stare that froze him like a statue. After a time, Jenkins spoke up. Are we friends then, Ackley? I should think so. I pity you then, Jenkins replied, staring once again into the fire. Ackley raised an eyebrow and sat back, taking a sip of his brandy. The blaze crackled and offered the pair a third member of their party. The flames dancing and breathing in much the same way as if they'd been a person. It's not particularly pleasant to be the subject of gossip, Jenkins said, after an indeterminate pause. I suppose not. I say this from experience. Jenkins took a long draught of his brandy, then placed his balloon down, half standing to pick up a log which he slung onto the flames. Red-hot particles of ash rose up in the hearth, and the flames began to eat away at the fresh fuel, blackening and licking away at the wood, almost as if it were an animal. This task complete, Jenkins turned to Ackley and interlaced his fingers. "'It started when I was at school,' he said. "'About the only person with whom I seemed to have sympathy there was my housemaster, Mr. Sevlon. "'He was a lonely chap himself, a mathematician, and young when I think of it now. "'To a young boy such as myself, eight or nine years old, he seemed a terribly old fellow, but he mustn't have been.' But there he was, in charge of dozens of boys, all of whom slept in dormitories in the upper rooms. The school had once been a country house, you see, and once the school was opened, they converted the servants' quarters. Each of the dormitories was named after a different species of bird. Redshank, swan, tern, and so on. How jolly, Ackley murmured, taking another drink. It, it was, I suppose. And I was in Gosling, the room closest to Sevlon's apartment, with all the younger boys. There were five of us there. Myself, Brinley, Makepeace, Winthrop, and Eldridge. Jenkins looked at Ackley out the corner of his eye, wetting his lower lip with the tip of his tongue. Eldridge was exactly the sort of boy who started gossip. No bigger than the rest, but a cruel sort of chap. "'Rather good at rugby and not particularly skilled at much else.' "'Oh, I know the sort,' Ackley chuckled. "'I had an Eldridge, too. Ogden was his name. Horrid sort.' Jenkins nodded. "'Well, then, picture your Ogden when I say Eldridge. "'And imagine that the school was one of those sorts of places that was a little down on its lug. "'Never quite enough food to go round, or enough coal for the fireplaces. Old Sevlon was one of the better masters, and the more success I seemed to have in mathematics, the more Eldridge detested me. Ackley half-smiled, knowingly, nodding for Jenkins to continue. Such was the state of things that we used to go hungry, Jenkins said, his voice low and little more than a whisper, but not to be kept down, we conspired to sneak out of our dormitory at night. Out of Gosling, 
Ackley nodded. Indeed, out of Gosling. Down the corridor, beyond Sevlon's door, out onto the landing above the school's atrium. There, creeping quiet as mice, the five of us would sneak down the creaky staircase, careful to make as little sound as possible, and then make our way about in the dark. Oh, I say, midnight japes! Quite right, Jenkins continued, half smiling, his eyes now fixed on the fire before them. First stop would always be the staff room, which was sometimes left unlocked. Within, we would sometimes find a half-finished gateau or a plate bearing some gristle and uneaten potatoes. On occasion, we would find a misshapen hunk of cheese and perhaps a few biscuits. And if we were really lucky, an unfinished bottle of wine. I never would have been brave enough, Ackley said flatly. Well, we had one another to jostle us forward. And if the staff room was locked, then we would pad across the tiles to the kitchen, which was never locked, despite having a keyhole. And there we would look through the larders and cupboards, being careful to always take just a little here and a little there, but... Jenkins picked up his brandy snifter then, passing it from one hand to the other and pinching the glass by the stem. He raised it in the space between the two men and spun it between his thumb and forefinger. The dark brown liquid twirled in a syrupy whirlpool and Jenkins stared at it in the fire's glow, smiling a little grimly. The question was always, where did the masters keep the drink. He brought the glass down and to his lips, draining what was in the balloon and setting the empty bowl down. Ackley, enraptured, leaned a little closer. Eldridge had a theory. He told us all that in the days when his older brother had attended the school, that a boy, Tom Winter, had ventured down into the cellar beneath the atrium stairs. He had there found the store, racks on racks of dusty, dark bottles. And so it had become brave Tom's duty to, from time to time, venture down there into the cellar right in the dead of night to purloin a bottle of wine or port to bring back to the other boys. Good on Tom, Ackley chuckled. Lad must have been a hero. All told, he had been. Jenkins said, all levity vanishing from his face. But the jollity had come to a shocking end. One night, traversing the cellar steps in the dark, Tom had slipped and cracked his skull as he fell. The boys in the dormitories had waited upstairs for him, presuming he had not returned for so long on account of being caught by one master or another, but no and they all stayed quiet on the matter the following day when it was presumed that young Master Winter had flown the coop and run away from the school. Beastly, Ackley sighed. Indeed, they searched the nearby wood, the school's stables and lake, the ornamental pond, but found nothing. It was not until several nights afterwards when one of the masters went down to fetch a new bottle that they found the lad down there stone dead. A silence grew between the two men, with the fire left as the only member of the party to continue the conversation. 
It crackled and spat, and the shadows around the room seemed to grow somehow to envelop them. Suffice to say, Jenkins continued, sitting back and once again interlacing his fingers, nobody dared venture down to the cellar after that. Only... Jenkins released his grip, and while one hand fell to his lap, he leaned on the other elbow and rubbed his temple. Ackley looked at him patiently, noting the tortured look, feeling a kind of kindred sympathy. Only Eldridge? he queried. Quite, said Jenkins. Only Eldridge? He challenged me, I suppose. Made fun, whispered away with makepeace, hid my things. I would enter the room to find him with Brinley and Winthrop, chuckling at my expense. Jenkins sighed deeply, and Ackley noted then that both men had finished their drinks. He offered the bottle to Jenkins, who held up a wide palm, then poured himself a generous measure. One day, Jenkins continued, I came back to the dormitory to find that one of them, I'm not sure which, had written a note from Tom Winter in boot polish on my pillowcase. How rotten. It was a challenge. An invitation, I suppose. And I had never been a superstitious sort of boy. I I thought it all rather silly, but knew it must have been risky to descend into the gloom down there, particularly if the story had been true and a boy really had died. Yet, for whatever reason, pride most likely, if not fear, I decided to take up Tom's challenge that very night. And so, with Brinley, Eldridge, Makepeace and Winthrop, I stayed up until near midnight and we crept out of Gosling in the moonlight, stepping gingerly over those floorboards we knew would creak and holding our breath as we did so. Down we went, five intrepid adventurers, thieves and knaves, sneaking through the shadows. And then, in the atrium at the bottom of the stairs, we came to the door that led down into the cellar. I was hardly a fool, of course, and had brought with me the stub of a candle and a book of matches. And to our surprise, we found the door there locked only by a padlock which was hanging open. Jenkins turned to Ackley, who was enraptured, staring at him over the rim of his brandy balloon. So? Ackley asked. So I opened the door, lit a match, and, with my stubby little candle clenched in my boyish fist, I stepped into the darkness. Gingerly, I descended each step, each made, I remember it clearly, of red bricks roughly cemented with loose plaster. And the deeper down I went, the more treacherous it became. The bricks were damp, you see, slippery and crumbling to pieces in places, worn away, no doubt, by many a master's hasty footsteps. And at the bottom, Ackley asked, almost breathless, what did you see? At first... Not so much. An old iron grate filled with rubble and dust, disused piping and the like. 
and it wasn't a huge room, but it had tiny little arched windows up near the ceiling, each letting in just the slightest shimmer of moonlight. But as I moved through the gloom, sure enough, I saw them there. Row upon row of glinted, dusty bottles, blackly green as if filled with blood. By Jove, said Ackley, the treasures of Solomon's temple. I picked up the first bottle I could lay my hand on and was keen to get away on account of the cold air down there, cold and wet by my memory. So I turned and looked to make my way back up the steps. Only at the top of them I saw Eldridge, a vicious little grin on his face. I started to climb step by step, but then I noticed the padlock in his hand. And just as I did, he shut the door on me, in doing so disturbing the air in such a way that my candle blew out. I heard the click of the padlock and the muffled laughter of the other boys, and I stumbled up the steps, tripping as I went. I'm not sure how, but in the rush I lost my grip on the wine bottle and it fell, shattered at my feet, and panicked I must have slipped. I tumbled down those steps, cracking my head so hard as I did so that the world seemed to flash white and blue before my eyes. And as I tumbled, I also cut up my hands and arms from the shards of broken glass, you see. And when I came to, I was at the bottom of the stairwell, soaking wet and cold. My head ached to pounding, my fingers hurt, and my nose was filled with the rich smell of wine mingled with the stinging, metallic odour of my own blood. Good God, Ackley whispered, to be left like that, all alone. Oh said Jenkins, turning to look at him. I was not alone. I thought I was at first, but down there in the dark, in the cold and the damp, I heard something breathing. Breathing? Shallow breaths, only shallow little sips of air off beyond where I could see, and I was too afraid to move as well I might be, but slowly, ever so slowly, I reached into my pocket to retrieve the book of matches. This I struggled to do, my hands cut up as they were, sticking to pockets of my dressing gown, but in time I got them free all the while listening to the sound of those breaths, which seemed to me to be getting closer. Ackley looked at Jenkins, noting then his hands. He saw on them dozens of little scars, scars that seemed to run up his wrists that were normally obscured by his gloves. Ackley watched then as Jenkins, shaking slightly, Mind raising the book of matches to his face, flipping it open, pulling one free and striking it against the match paper. The first match I struck snapped in my fingers, he said, and the second I dropped 
but the third... The third rasped home and burnt into a bright ball of flame. My head swam and face ached. I must have split a cheek in my tumble, but I squinted out into the newly eliminated half-gloom and saw... Yes? Jenkins turned to Ackley, his face now a white mask of terror. A hand, Ackley. A tiny hand. A child's hand. It was low to the ground, just as I was, as if the poor fellow had been crawling about in the dark. It was just a glimpse. Black and broken nails. Crooked fingers crushed on the fall. And always those shallow, shallow breaths. The young Proctor turned, once again massaging his temple. Then he turned back, his eyes wild. The match burned out, he said, looking slowly to the fire. And there I lay, cold and wet in the dark, shivering for fear. And I felt then the air shift, felt it move, sour and musty on my face. And then, the touch, so light on my knee, of that tiny little broken hand. Ackley sat in silence for a moment, listening to his own heartbeat, waiting for Jenkins to speak again. It was Sevlon who found me the following morning, he said, covered in blood and wine, bruised and bloody. Not too sympathetic either, I might add. In fact, the old fellow never quite treated me the same after that. I think he had me down to be cut from a different cloth, but in his eyes I suppose I was then just a thief. Do you know, he then added, half smiling, I might have another drop of brandy. Ackley topped off Jenkins' balloon and watched as he took a hearty mouthful. Matron patched me up, of course, and Eldritch, Brinley, Makepeace, and Winthrop avoided me like the plague. I was laid up in the sanatorium, you see, had broken my leg, some ribs, this and that, you know. I was covered in bruises and nasty cuts. I tried to tell anyone who would listen, but they would not give me the time of day. Tell them what? Ackley asked. What had happened? Yes, of course, but also what the, what the thing, the boy, Tom, had said. It spoke? He did, yes, in a voice no more than a whisper. And first it was Makepeace, who they presumed had been kicked by the pony in the stables. He was found splayed out on the straw there that afternoon. Then... Brindley, who they found drowned in the pond the next day, the same day they found Winthrop, who must have slipped from a tree branch in the wood. Both slipped, they said. Both fell. And next it was Eldridge, who was strangest of all. Died in his bed. Of a heart attack, so they said, his face smeared thick 
with boot black. Dear God, said Ackley, setting down his glass. And they knew it couldn't have been me. Sevlon, all of them must have known, but none of them listened. To what man? Ackley asked. What? To what Tom Winter said. That he would be so glad now to have a friend of his own. A friend to cherish and protect and keep him company. Ackley fell silent as Jenkins continued, wondering whether one or both of them might have drunk a little too much. The school closed, of course, and we all moved on. I wasn't sure what happened to Sevlon, but my uncle moved me about a bit from establishment to establishment. Whenever I started to make friends, the same things happened. Moved on, and on, and on. Ackley turned to Jenkins then, frowning, and Jenkins turned back, looking to him appealingly, sympathetically. I'm terribly sorry, Ackley, he said. I did try to tell you to desist, to go home and leave me to it, but it has always been this way, on Christmas Eve or any other godforsaken day of the year. Well then, listener, are you spooked? I hope you're spooked. Hopefully everybody's feeling in the mood for haunting season after our first two spooks have uh, haunted their various haunts. I'm quite interested that we started with two basically Edwardian stories. They feel Edwardian to me, at least. Kind of like pre-World War II. um, Yeah, mine's meant to be the 30s. Yeah, the 20s, 30s. Sure, so so like interwar years. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But there's something about uh, that period of time, of course, when spiritualism is at its height and M.R. James is doing his business, writing his stories. I mean, certainly my story is definitely inspired by M.R. James. Um, yes, you've got your your touch of the ghostly hand, yeah. haven't you? And the, the two scholarly characters yeah, recounting sure. their experiences, the school setting as well. I feel like yours is also a bit E.F. Benson as well. Um, in terms of the uncanny encounter with something that's not really explainable. Yes, and maybe not even really there. Yes, indeed. So maybe in her head. So with the Rosemary Branch, I mean, ghost trains are a classic of of the genre. Um, But I'm not sure I've ever read one where there's a female main character. So I thought that was a really interesting aspect of that story. And then this doppelganger effect that she kind of meets what could be potentially a version of herself or a woman who's had a previous experience and also engages in a sort of J.B. Priestley style time slip. I think there are like layers of uncanny within that story that I love. Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of plays into the fears or I guess the anxiety she's having about not really having much of an identity and not really being much of a person, sort of being a blank person. Mm. And I guess the the spook, as it were, is the extreme version of that. Yeah, and then at the end, she decides she's going to buy this car, which is a big action that she's decided Mm. to take. And I think she probably isn't going to marry Robert and settle into that life at all. I, I did think she doesn't want to go past that rosemary all of that rosemary running no visits to the family home would be really fraught wouldn't they (laughs) (laughs) oh good for her such an interesting story though i loved it i like the um in yours how it's a sort of passed on curse as well so ackley is being very nice and jovial and extending the hand of friendship at christmas but 
but actually in just talking to this cursed individual, he's going to be got by the ghost of Tom Winter. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things that I found inspired me to write the story is the kind of subtext of M.R. James's life, i.e. the kind of likely queerness of M.R. James. Famously, M.R. James used to write stories for these groups of young men. Um, he had a dearly beloved friend when he was younger, and that friend went and married a woman, and there was never... Died young, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, and there was, mm. there was never the kind of romance that some people think that M.R. James craved. I mean, this is not certain, but it's likely, it seems. I mean, his characters are definitely these lonely, scholarly men, aren't they? Perhaps a little bit misogynist, perhaps a little bit grumpy. And they often have an encounter resolving in a touch. That's right. And so I wanted to draw out the idea that maybe these were two men who maybe were gay and maybe trying to get close to one another. Uh, And one of them's choosing to not go home to his wife and family, instead Mm. wants to spend time with this handsome younger man, thinks that he might have the opportunity to fall in love. And then, of course, it goes wrong in in a really horrible horrible way. Yeah. So, So that was in part what inspired me. The other side of what inspired me was my boarding school because one of the boarding schools i went to had this ghost this legend of this ghost down oh, really? in, in, yeah down at the bottom it's a real the steps. Spook. yeah yeah in, in the wine cellar did, yeah. and did you ever go down into the wine cellar to meet this book so i only went there from the outside so I, so there was an outer door that took down because right. the, the, the old boiler was accessible down there as well so yeah i did end up going down there once and that was during the day and it was scary it was mostly kept locked at night but all that's stuff about sneaking out of dormitories and stealing food and Mm. stuff that comes directly from my own experience (laughs) at boarding school and that used to be spooky you know wandering around in the dark trying to not be heard by teachers and then having to hide sometimes when Mm. they came looking for you with torches (laughs) (laughs) i like that your your ghost is is childish and petty as well it's it's stuck in this moment and it's his life he's he's not capable of understanding that actually maybe the young man can have friends now Mm. he just is like no all the friends are false i must take revenge on them yes every friend must be evil (laughs) and he's kind of incapable of moving beyond to that very unsophisticated understanding well, there's something scary about kids, isn't there? Let's be yeah, honest. Definitely. And there's also <laughs> something very scary about the ghost that comes with you. Yeah. Like, that's couldn't also be true. left behind in the cellar. Yeah. Came with him from school to school. One last interesting piece of connective tissue between our two stories the lighting of matches. We both had people navigating the dark by match. Yes. Light. You can't, it, it's a lot more romantic than navigating by the light of a smartphone, isn't yes. it? Really? Very much so. <laughs> well, mine was inspired by when we had a trip um, on the Bluebell Railway, which is our local steam railway. it's it's completely lovely and wholesome and there are no horrible things there at all which just tells you a lot about my imagination I guess (laughs) but going through the tunnels and you know looking at your own pale reflected face Mm. it was very atmospheric for me and you also have a grand destiny so it's definitely not about you (laughs) (laughs) thank you darling (laughs) right well shall we leave it there and uh, yes so we will be back on Thursday with a special episode of The Best Jury all about those demons which were unleashed by last Thursday's Ouija episode (laughs) (laughs) and their shenanigans and um, next Monday will be more ghost stories to celebrate haunting season of course now if you would like to join our Patreon and get bonus and exclusive content then please do sign up at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast 
please share your pumpkins with us um, and of course on social media we're at facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast instagram at three ravens podcast and on twitter by at three ravens pod until next time then when our story's gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle until you're out of the woods our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour. And our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.